0: Hello everyone and welcome back to another awesome episode of the Biff Bites Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Me, joined in the studio as always by my faithful co-host, Mr. Adam Shear. How's it going, Adam?
1: I'm doing great, Jerry. Feeling very inquisitive today.
0: <laughs> yes, it is that time of year. We are a short couple weeks before the November exam cycle kicks off. And as is tradition at this point, we have decided to bring it on back to Question Palooza Volume 3. Uh, it's one of our most requested topics to do uh, on the show for you know a refresher episode. So we're going to give the people what they want and come at you with six brand new CFP questions for a nice little breakdown refresher
1: right before the exam kicks off. <laughs> Love it! This is one of the the best the best types of episodes out there for those preparing for the exam. And the the one thing the first thing is on my mind, Jerry, is that last episode. Uh, it was question palooza disco fever uh do we have any thoughts on on what this this round is going to be i mean i guess we could just wait and see but um maybe we'll let the listeners chime in but
0: <laughs> revenge of the irs <laughs>
1: <laughs> revenge of the irs <laughs> you don't want the the irs's revenge no those, those two words not. they're like <laughs> oil and vinegar <laughs> well um, let's see um i I think we're just going to jump right in, Jerry. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) We have one question from each of the the six major topics uh, that are covered in your CFP exam. And we are just going to go rotate through all of them. So let's kick it off with a question for you, Jerry, coming from the general principles domain. Kevin, a prospect, met with Priya, a CFP professional at a community event. Kevin mentioned to Priya that he was planning to retire next year. Priya asked Kevin if she may send him a document her firm prepared that provides an overview of issues to consider when engaging in retirement planning. Kevin agreed. Priya sends Kevin an article titled, what will my savings cover in retirement? Priya sends the same article to all her clients and prospects who are within five years of their intended retirement. In this instance, does priya have fiduciary duty jerry
0: yeah this is an interesting question so on the cfp exam you're going to get lots of questions that are uh easier than they look you know especially a lot of the formula questions and things like that they look really scary but once you dive into them they're actually way easier than they look and then you have questions like this which on their surface seem very straightforward and easy. But once you dive into it, it can actually get pretty tricky. And I've seen lots of students get tripped up on this. So first thing I like to do whenever we're in a fiduciary duty style question like this is think about, well, what level of advice is being given? Are they tailoring the advice to the client or is it just general education Uh, style content. Because uh, if you're just giving general education uh, advice that uh, applies to anyone and everyone, you don't technically have a fiduciary duty in that regard because you're just providing uh, education. So uh, the answer here is Priya does not have a fiduciary duty because she's, she's just giving a pamphlet. You know, that pamphlet could be handed off to everyone. But what people I think get tripped up on is even though Priya doesn't have a fiduciary duty, she still has the duty of integrity. And I think that's where a lot of students get confused here is uh fiduciary duty is only owed to your clients, but you owe a duty of integrity as a CFP to everyone and anyone. You know, it, it is your job as a CFP to give, you know, accurate honest uh, uh opinions even if it is just a pure education standpoint like Priya can't be giving Kevin a pamphlet saying that he should you know sell all of his assets and invest everything into the latest you know cryptocurrency on the market or you know oh my. <laughs> put it all into actual crude oil barrels that he keeps in his garage because Those would not be, uh, you know, honest advice uh, to give to this client. And she would be violating her duty of integrity in that regard. So no to fiduciary duty, but always yes to duty of integrity. And be careful not to get those two confused because there is a lot of overlap between them.
1: Yeah, great points there, Jerry. Uh, I'm just going to share a resource where I think students can learn more just about how and when these apply and that being our tried and true cfp boards roadmap to the code and standards they have a really great infographic on this topic so uh, use jerry's talking points as your starting point and then dive into that roadmap it tells you when each one of those duties apply and what they are yep
0: yeah super important to study always gets asked on the exam pretty much every single year
1: uh, it's a really important topic that the
0: cfp board likes to harp on for good reason i mean it's something you're going to deal with if there's any topic you deal with every single day it's how to appropriately interact with clients and you know the duties that you owe to those clients
1: yeah and it's that it's in the poll position it's a one right That's yeah yeah a <laughs> one <A1. laughs> yep so they they let you know it's the most important piece of the whole code and standards. And uh you have to act act in accordance with that while you're practicing CFP and you have to over-prepare on it, I'd say, for your CFP exam. Yep, for sure. For sure. Because
0: it's easy to just you know sleep on these, say, oh, it's common sense, I got this, and then let me tell you, there's no worse feeling than being on test day. And thinking it's like, well, what is this? Is this duty of integrity? Is this fiduciary? Is this one of the other duties? Because it can really get into the nitty gritty with the questions. This one's straightforward, which is fiduciary duty. But I have seen some real detailed questions that dig deep. And you really got to know your stuff to get those right. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. All right, Adam, you ready?
1: I... Was born ready. Let's go.
0: <laughs> well, I'm going to warm you up with your favorite. We're <laughs> going to start with tax for you.
1: So right.
0: active participants in a real estate business may be eligible to deduct up to blank of passive losses that can be used to offset passive portfolio or active business income.
1: Oh, boy. This is, this is a heavy hitter on the CFP tax side often on the exam. Uh, Something that's great if you qualify for it, that being active participation status. And because this question asked about up to, they're talking about the maximum that you could possibly take in passive losses. And that would be 25,000. So, 25K is my final answer, and let's let's walk through active participation a little bit. So, yeah, um, passive losses. The the deal with passive losses is, is that they often are going to be in this passive income, passive loss silo, and the passive losses can only really be used to offset certain types of passive income. Um, it gets more detailed, but I think for our purposes here, it's just it, confined to that one silo, passive income, passive losses. Now, the cool thing if you're an active participant in real estate is that in general, IRS says you're in real estate. Real estate is generally, and by default, a passive type of business experience, right? The income that you're going to get from real estate it generally is going to be passive in nature. But active participation status is this little carve out that says, if you own 10% or more of a piece of real estate or a real estate venture, and you're substantially involved in the management of that, you're an active participant. And what that does is it allows you to deduct up to that $25,000 of passive losses that now can be taken out of the passive silo and can be used to offset portfolio income, so from your investments, or even actively earned income from your W-2 job. So it's a really great thing. Now, the caveat here is that uh, like all good things, the IRS throws a phase-out threshold onto it. So it limits the number of people that can actually use this in the real world. And that phase-out begins when your modified adjusted gross income is at 100000 And it ends when you get up to 150,000. So we narrowed the pool of people that can actually use this, but there is potential if you're 10% or more owner substantially involved, you have losses, uh, you're deemed an active participant that you can either get up to that maximum amount, or you would be allowed to use a portion of it um, or none at all. This might be just a non-factor if you're earning a lot and, um, and you have passive losses, you might just have to treat the passive losses and suspend them or do something else with them. But yeah. 25,000, I love this question that you picked out here, Jerry. Uh, great way to get started on the tax side.
0: And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Adam, also about just ordering. You know, first thing you got to do is offset your passive gains with your passive losses. And then if you have excess losses, uh, you can then it I believe it's good it, they call it recharacterizing it you can recharacterize that passive loss into an active loss is that how it works
1: yeah for sure I mean you would you would want to meet the passive income with the passive loss right so that you're not having extra income uh, that that's unnecessary but yeah you would go into that silo you could go there first and then you can go, outside of the silo, if there is excess up and up to that $25,000, uh, dollar amount. And again, that this is, it only applies to, you know, that, that special status of active participant with the IRS. Uh, but absolutely Jerry, that's the way the ordering goes.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Good stuff. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, definitely important topic.
1: We got another one here for you, Jerry. All right. Here's my insurance pitch. Kidding. Um, It is insurance planning. Jerry, here we go. Mario's automobile insurance has a $500,000 limit for liability. He also maintains a personal liability umbrella policy with an underlying coverage requirement of $300,000 and a policy limit of $1 million. Mario causes an automobile accident that results in him being liable for bodily injury and property damage to others resulting in $700,000 damage. There's also a pending lawsuit against Mario for an additional $500,000. What must be the amount of damages to exhaust Mario's personal liability coverage?
0: Yeah, so this is is a perfect example of RTFQ. Uh, This question throws a lot of information at you. Most of it worthless for the question itself. Um, You know, it's going into all this detail about an accident that he had. It's talking about the underlying coverage requirement, which isn't really important because... He has way more than is needed. He needs 300,000. He has 500,000. So, you know, the coverage requirement is a non factor at that point. And Mm -hmm. they're throwing all this information at you, and your mind will immediately start calculating it, especially if you're in, you know, test mode where you've been drilling these types of questions day in and day out. Your brain just kind of gets ahead of itself and starts, you know, calculating the offset of how much damage was caused versus how much coverage is left. And then, you get to the last sentence and you realize none of that is actually needed. They're just asking for what is the total amount of coverage he has. So uh, I really like this question because it's a great example to not get ahead of yourself. Um, a tip that I will often give to my tutoring students um, that struggle with these types of questions is find the question mark. When you get a very involved, you know, paragraph long question like this. Locate the sentence that actually has a question mark because that is what the question actually is, and just isolate that sentence to see what they're actually asking, and then go and read all of the back fluff in detail and figure out the bits of information that is actually important. Um, so. Really with this one, uh, he has $1.5 million of coverage and it's as easy as that. You know, He has a $500,000 automobile policy and then he has a $1 million umbrella policy. He's going to use up the $500,000 from the automobile policy and then the umbrella policy is going to kick in for anything over that. And it really is that simple. The difficulty of this question is in... Uh, you know, getting confused with all that extra information that just is not important.
1: Awesome points. I really like your find the question, Mark. I think that's something that every candidate that listens into this episode should take with them. That's That's a great point there. Just make sure you're clear on what is being asked, because when I when I'm reading this, I just see a lot of numbers being thrown at me with a lot of zeros, and a fair amount of commas, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> it's tough to keep all that in the proper place. But keep your eye on what really counts. So, just a really great question here, and, and awesome advice, Jerry.
0: A point definitely. All right, should we continue on with the retirement question?
1: <clears throat> all right, I'm ready for it. Retirement, that is, not the question. But yeah. <laughs> uh I'm probably going to have to wait a little bit. So why don't we do the question and I'll keep on working at retirement.
0: <laughs> so under the excess method for integration with Social Security, what is the maximum excess contribution rate to the plan if the base contribution percentage is
1: 6%? All right. I, I admit that... This was one of those concepts that when I was studying for the exam, I always just got intimidated by the name of it, right? It's like social security integration excess method. And it's like, whoa, I'm, yeah. I'm already spinning with like qualified <laughs> plans and trying to figure out all the, all the different, you know, stock option treatment. But uh, this is actually pretty straightforward. So um, <clears throat> before we get to to the answer here, just a little bit behind why this is even in place right so as as our exam takers are aware social security has a wage base limit that uh inflates or adjusts year over year and money is paid into social security up to that wage base limit um for people that earn above the wage base There's this social security integration uh, that can be included in all qualified plans, tax advantage retirement plans, except for ESOPs and SIMPLEs. And the idea is people who are higher earners will have the opportunity to get extra comp toward retirement. And what the excess method is, it's just a way of figuring out how much uh, can be contributed to the plan. Um, above that base contribution rate for people that fall under that umbrella, that being the the high earners. So there's a simple formula. And it's, it's as easy as this, that you're going to take the lower of these two amounts, the base rate times two, which would be 12, or the base rate plus 5.7. And in this case, the lesser is base rate plus 5.7. And your final answer is 11.7. So I think the the take home point here for our exam takers is sometimes these simple bullet point uh, concepts and these little formulas can go a long way and can actually get you the exam points because you you don't have to know every single thing inside out, you know, outside in, knowing every application. Sometimes it's good enough just to know the basics. And uh, for this concept, excess method, social security integration, lesser of base rate times two or base rate plus
0: 5.7 now yep. good stuff and i mean this is really just another great example too of there are just some topics that you just kind of have to memorize you know oh, yeah compared to the series seven the cfp is more application based than memorization based but there are still going to be those little bits and bobs that you just have to know you know this is one of those questions that if you didn't know that it was either two times the base or five point seven, whichever is less. You're never going to get this question right. You know, yep. you just you just have to have that fact memorized to get this question right.
1: Absolutely, you're not going to go with your gut here. You're like, you know what, that feels right.
0: <laughs> that eleven point seven, that looks good. That nice weird <laughs> off number. That looks that looks right.
1: <laughs> Said no one right. So yeah. you, you can. Be really, really clear in your convictions when you're like, "That is right," and here's why. Here's why it's right. It's because of the formula.
0: And I guarantee you, on the exam, you know, twelve percent is going to be a wrong
1: answer choice because one hundred percent. Yeah, because (laughs) the board is going to be
0: like, "Uh, "Oh, you know, that twelve percent—that's a nice round number. That looks good. We'll go with that. That's double. That's double our six percent figure. That must be right."
1: Yeah. Exactly this is adam from the biff crew now if you're listening into the podcast and you're finding our conversations of interest if you're finding the material that we talk about helpful if you're looking to take your knowledge of personal financial planning to the next level then you need to consider the bryant university and biff cfp education program this program was written and it's delivered by the biff team and one of the things that we pride ourselves on is being accessible to serve as your guides and support you for the entire CFP education journey. And all throughout that journey, you have access to practitioners and to experts that are going to help you to understand these concepts and also help to best prepare you for your CFP exam. So if you're looking for a CFP education program with great support and the BiffBytes crew, then the Bryant University BIP CFP education is for you. For more information, visit bryantcfp.com. All right, let's let's keep this thing trucking here, Jerry. We we've we've arrived. You've gone you've gone with the the inverse here. You've you're finishing really strong. Um <laughs> whereas I'm going to be crawling into estate planning at the end of my questions. But investments, this is Jerry's wheelhouse. Here we go. An investor has a large unrealized gain in their XYZ common stock, which is currently trading at $35 per share. The investor remains happy with the stock, but realizes that its recent run cannot go on forever. If the investor is willing to sell the stock at $40, what option strategy could you recommend?
0: Oh, yeah. This is a great question. Um, I really like this question because it really highlights the importance that language matters, especially with these suitability style questions. Um, Now, a lot of people, when they learn options, the way they're taught to most people is that options are a hedging strategy. You know, you can use options to protect a position. So when students first see a question like this, they immediately jump to wanting to buy puts to protect this portfolio. It's like, oh, we got this. Uh, Position It's got a really large unrealized gain. Um, You know, we want to make sure we protect that game. We got to buy puts. We got to hedge, 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 hedge. But if you pay close attention to the language of the question, the client isn't worried about hedging. You're the one worried about hedging. Nowhere (laughs) in this question does it say that the investor is worried about XYZ stock taking a downturn, that they're afraid of losing money. All it says is that they think it's run its course, that it's not going to go up anymore. But just because it's not going to go up anymore doesn't necessarily mean that they think it's going to go down. So be very careful not to project your emotions onto the client. You know, you might be worried about hedging, but this client is not. This client is not interested in a hedge. So buying a put would be the attractive wrong answer in this case. That's what the advisor wants to do. That's not what the client wants to do. Uh, What we have to figure out in order to, you know, figure out what the client wants to do is based on the language of the question. So they don't think it's gonna go up anymore. They are willing to sell it at $40 though. That is the crux of this question. The investor is willing to sell at $40. So if I'm in this investor's shoes and I have a position that I like that I don't necessarily want to sell now, but I don't think it's going to make me very much more money in the future in as far as gains go, how can I uh, still gain some income off of this position? And the way you gain income with options is by selling options. So uh, I've already identified that I want income. So now that limits me to either selling a put or selling a call. Now, if I were to sell a put, that would require me to buy more shares of this company if the price goes down. And there's nothing in this question saying that the investor particularly wants to increase their position. They don't think it's gonna go up in the future. Why would they sink more capital into this position? So selling a put is not gonna be an option here for them because they just don't want more shares of it. However, they are willing to sell that at a specific price of $40. So what I would recommend to this client is sell some covered calls at $40. That way, if the price does go up to $40 and the and the stock gets called away, the client's okay with that because they were happy to sell at $40 in the first place. But ideally what happens is that this stock keeps trading at right around $35, you know, for a continued amount of time. You know, maybe it's a dividend paying stock, They're collecting dividends off of it. And then to supplement that every single week that they sell a covered call, they're going to take that premium and stick it in their pocket. And then that covered call is going to expire and they get to run it all over again the next week and put more income week after week. So that's a way that you can continue to make money on a position, even if that position is stalled out and is trading sideways for a long period of time. So be aware of that side of option strategies as well. It's not just purely a hedging bet. You can also use options to supplement income uh, as long as you know what you're doing.
1: Action-packed there. There's so much so much good stuff. And, and it all starts actually with the question. I think the, the question here brings up two things to mind for me, which is number one, how much valuable information is often packed into just a few sentences on your CFP exam. Yeah. Right. There's so much here, even though it's short. So, you know, I think people are inclined. You see a short question and zip right through to the the, the the question mark, and then all right, let's just go get this one done with. Um first suggestion yeah. is to just take the time that you need oh. to read slowly, read completely, process it. And think it through critically, because that's really what the board wants you to do. And then the second piece, um, I brought this up in my Q&A session in the BIF review this week. And I think it's worth even sharing with the, the broader community here, is that you one of the most common pitfalls that I hear about when it comes to processing questions are, are people uh, that have a, a situation in, in a question, right? And they start bringing in this extra information that they've they work through in their professional side into the question. And it totally mucks up their process because they're now outside of the boundary of the question and they're trying to fit a very specific client strategy that they use in their firm into the question, right? Mm-hmm. And I could see that happening with something like this, where it's like, well, in this case, my firm would do this. Right. And th- that question's not here. So therefore, this is just a wrong question. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, is there
0: something wrong with me? No. No. The question must the be
1: question. What the question is. <laughs> um, but I feel like I mean, do you see that too in working with oh, students,
0: Jerry? All the time. All the yeah. time. Uh, you know, yeah. I've I've had students argue with me. It's like, uh, well, I would recommend that the client does this. I'm like, oh, okay, well, which which option choice is that? Oh, it's none of them? That is not one of the, <laughs> the A, B, C, or D questions? Well, then it's not the right answer. Your choices are A, B, C, or D. This is not an a la carte menu where you get to substitute and, you know, pick and choose what you're going to recommend, you know? yeah. For better or for worse, this is not an open, uh, open response uh, test. It's multiple choice. And you are limited by those four answer options.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. A really great one. And and I know that you in the Biff review host deep dive sessions for our, our premium course students on Fridays. And yep. I know this... just recently you went through options. And do you want to share a little bit about, you know, what that looks like? Like what, what happens in the deep dives that would make options a good topic to cover?
0: Yeah, I mean, options is one of my favorite topics. Um, I actually do a lot of options trading in my personal accounts. Um, so the way I think the best way to learn options is through you know real world experience. Um, it was some of the best advice I got when I was taking my series seven. You know, uh, I asked the guys on the high net worth trading desk who deal with a lot of options like, hey, how do I get this stuff? And they told me, you know, go to Yahoo or any one of those like paper trading websites Uh, and make a fake account and just start paper trading options and it's the easiest way to figure out how this stuff works how your account can blow up um, you know (laughs) what mistakes you can make Um, and that was some of the best advice I got and it really got me hooked on options trading cool Um, and so that's what I try and do in the deep dive sessions is I actually you know break out my uh my cost basis reports and I take a look at you know past options trades that I've entered into and kind of do a breakdown and talk to the students about you know what my thoughts were. It's like, you know, hey, I got to sign these these shares. So I'm I'm sitting on these shares. I don't really want them, but I don't want to sell them at a loss. You know, what's a strategy that I could enter into so that I can make some income while I'm waiting for the price of this position to recover. Or, you know, I took this uh, options position, but it's a very risky position and I don't want to risk blowing my account up. So what is a uh you know an add-on a second leg that I can add to this options position uh, in order to hedge myself so that if things don't go my way, I don't completely blow up my account and uh get some very angry calls from my broker saying I'm in a margin call. Um, so I think that's one of the best ways to learn about this is real world application you know yep. seeing how these things fit together.
1: Absolutely. It's great. Great approach there. And and just a reminder to everyone that this exam is scenario-based. And for as deeply well-versed you are on the theoretic side, the actual application is where you're going to see the questions. And what better way to expose people to the application than opening that up and saying, hey, check it out. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this is how i've done this and this was my train train of thought right. um yeah good stuff
0: yeah awesome all right should we finish it strong adam with a state let's do it you know i i think october should be a state awareness month you know all the spooky scary skeletons really makes me think about putting a good estate plan in in uh in action i think i think uh october is a state awareness month
1: i think you just came up with a great halloween costume for me <laughs> the, the estate planning attorney excellent excellent will his name is will
0: <laughs> excellent. That's, that's quite the dad costume. <laughs> <laughs> oh man <laughs> all right all right let's go will, will the estate attorney <laughs> uh at the death of the first spouse the blank election can be made to transfer any unused lifetime exclusions amount to the surviving spouse
1: oh right i know this one this is the deceased spouse unused exclusion the dsue election um it's it's actually something where you you have to opt out of it it's kind of built into the system now and the the way that it works is you as a U.S citizen right you have a, a lifetime gift and a state tax uh exclusion or exemption amount and it's at an all-time high now as a result of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. I mean, it's, it's in multiples of the millions. Uh, this year, it's $12.9 million of taxable gifts or taxable transfers at death that can be offset uh, entirely. And what happened prior to the DSUE being put in place was that if not used during the lifetime or at death that your spouse's exemption amounts would go away when, when, when they passed away Mm -hmm. and a law that was put in place, I believe in 2010 zone uh, changed that. So now spouses are able to carry over unused exemption amount uh, and just a simple example so if if there are two spouses, one passes away, neither of them use any of their exemption amount in 2023, you can actually stack your spouses on top of yours. Uh, there's some special rules when uh, remarriages occur and you still have uh, living ex-spouses. Uh, but, but really, I think what you would see here on your exam is just something about what this is and how it works. And it has... It's changed some of the estate planning strategies a little bit having this in place, um, because one of the one of the things that you could do as, as a spouse is just transfer your estate underneath the unlimited marital deduction, and with this now in place, I think it changes some of those strategies where um, you you can do that, and you can do that also by knowing that your unused exclusion or exemption amount is going to transfer as well. So a uh, good thing to know about a topic we talk about in the BIF review, uh, especially when we get into spousal transfers and, and different trusts and um, your form 706 for six feet under uh, when someone passes away that needs to be completed. And that's all I got to say about that, Jerry. Yeah.
0: Good old DSU but Sue. yep very important uh something that gets overlooked a lot i know this is a topic that i did not have a firm grasp on going into Mm -hmm. the cfb exam and i was just lucky that I didn't really get any DSU questions on my exam, but yeah, certainly something that, you know, it's kind of funny after you get the CFP marks and then you like learn things, you're like, man, <laughs> I should have probably kn- known this going into the exam and <laughs> I got real lucky that they didn't ask me any questions on this.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I know the feeling. I I don't know if, if uh, you know, I don't want to enable any of our students to not study, <laughs> but I always just think back and I know that there was three or four topics that i just couldn't connect with the last week and a half and i was just like you know what i'm gonna roll the dice here if, if i if i don't know these four and i get one of them i'm gonna do my best to just you know randomly pick an answer and move on and be okay with it yeah. um yeah but but dsu was yours huh
0: yeah i very tenuous grab that in uh and insurance was real rough for me going into the exam, which is ironic now that I'm uh, teaching the insurance classes. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it, it's okay. There, there is a lot of the stuff that it just doesn't really click until you have enough reps with it. Like some totally. of this stuff, like you're going to need to look at it three, four, five, six times before your brain starts making those, you know, synapse connections. And you really start understanding how these things fit together, and and that's okay. The the problem is that you may not have that time before the exam. So, like you said, sometimes you just got to roll the dice. Uh, but just know that there are going to be topics that you're not going to quite get until you get some more experience under your belts.
1: Yeah, and I mean, it's I think it's just after after this, right? <clears throat> that that some of the real learning happens. Like this, this is a big monumental professional milestone. But what you you do after and and seeing how this applies and where it applies with real people and and their financial situations is where you really hone that expertise. Um, I often say to people that, uh, you know, what, what often happens is that first three months after you get your preliminary pass, you have your CFP marks, that because you're not studying everything comprehensively, some mm-hmm. of it starts to get fuzzy. Yeah. And we're fortunate, Jerry, because we get to continue to teach this, so we're still in touch with a lot of this stuff. I mean, every CFP cycle. Um, but but I think where where people, if they're not teaching, you know, you're going to continue to deepen your knowledge in your areas of expertise just through through practice.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it's a little bit corny and I always roll my eyes whenever I hear a, a school say this, but this really does have some some truth to it of that. You know, the CFP sets you up to be a lifetime learner. You know,
1: uh-huh. you yep.
0: the CFP is really giving you the tools so that you can then go out and get a deeper understanding of these topics. And you can definitely tailor it to, you know, what your client base is because, you know, some advisors are never going to touch a state or insurance. Other advisors are going to build their entire practice around a state and in insurance. So yeah. um, the, the key is, is that you keep learning about this stuff, getting deeper and uh, understanding and application and mm-hmm. experience with it. And, and that's how you really become a subject matter expert.
1: 100%. And you know what? There's there's no better thing to give you a kick um, than if you're in practice and you have one of those topics that you kind of just turned your head on a little bit um, <laughs> during your studies. Yeah, come onto your desk and you you have to learn about <laughs> yeah. it at that point. <laughs> yeah, um, it's
0: like your client meeting is tomorrow at noon. <laughs> you need to understand this topic by the time because, uh, that client rolls in the door because, you know, they are expecting you to give them guidance and, and help them understand this. So, yeah, yeah I've, I've had my fair share of panicked research days <laughs> before, you know, uh, a high end client rolls in, uh, you know, yeah. expecting you to to know your stuff.
1: <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, you know, that's where you see me you know, wandering around my house mumbling, where's my tax facts? Where's my tax facts? (laughs) (laughs) Um, But all right, Jerry, this was this was fun. I always like these episodes. And we'll keep these coming every CFP cycle if there's interest. So if you liked what you heard, please let us know if you have other topics on your mind as you're preparing, please let us know too, because we're always happy to hop on the pod and, and have a little discussion about it.
0: Yeah, definitely. Great episode. Good luck to all of the test takers. And, you know, it's already that time, uh, Adam. We're already going to start thinking about the March exam. Ooh. That's going to be around the corner any any day now once uh, yeah. November wraps up. So if you are thinking about sitting for March, we'd love to have you. Come check us out at uh, the Biff crew. Uh, we'll be opening up uh, the uh, enrollment for the March review and we'll hope to see you there.
1: Yeah. Best of luck to everyone and, you know, keep your head down in this last little stretch and go get those marks.
0: Definitely. Well, until then, we will see you all next week and make sure you subscribe for great episodes of Biff Bites coming to your inbox every single Friday. (laughs)
1: you <laughs>